Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 217 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Our baby girl, Mia Mae McEvely, was born on August 24th at 5.03 p.m., and she weighed in at eight pounds, four ounces, and was 21 inches long. So um, it's been quite the the, the two weeks here, just getting acclimated and everything, but uh, my wife, Kenzie, and Mia are doing really, really well. Um, No major issues. The birth went as planned. Uh, Kenzie is recovering nicely, so um, it was it was great. We were we were told it was the uh, most boring textbook birth uh, that some people have ever seen, which is a very good thing. We love boring births. <laughs> I love that. So um, yeah, eventually we'll uh, I'm sure I'll do a podcast with her strapped to my chest or something of the sorts. But uh, but her and Kenzie are getting some much needed rest right now. Love it. Um, as always, we will quickly review uh, the month-to-date and year-to-date performance for the major market indices that we track, and this data is from YCharts. Um, and this, these numbers are as of the market close on September 6th. Uh, S&P 500 index is down 0.9% for the month and up 16.3% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 0.8% for the month and up 3.9% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 1.2% for the month, still up 32.5% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 1.3% for the month and up 6.8% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 0.8% for the month and up 6.8% for the year. The three-month Treasury rate at 5.55% year treasury rate at 5.01% and the 10-year treasury rate at 4.3%. Moving on to big headlines and current events, Matt, the only thing we really had for listeners is the August jobs report uh, came in at 187,000, which is 17,000 jobs higher than consensus expectations, according to Bloomberg. Um, however, the trend of downward adjustments to previously announced figures has uh, continued this month. So, for example, June was revised down by 80,000 jobs. July was revised down by 30,000 jobs. Um, so, you know, job figures actually have been revised lower uh, every jobs report so far this year. I know that you threw this in here, Matt. So why is this? something that you like to track? Why is it important to people? I know, you know, in my opinion, it has a lot to do with the Fed and their interest rate uh, control. So do you want to just touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So if we kind of um, take a step back, go to last year, Jackson Hole conference, end of August, the Fed was talking real tough on inflation. And they sat there and said, listen, we're going to bring in inflation, even if it causes a recession. And we we feel that the jobs market's going to have to cool down in order for us to bring in an inflation. 
Well, as these inflationary figures have come in this year so far, a worrisome spot on the economic front has been the resilient jobs market. And what's really interesting is to see eight straight months of downward previous revisions. It's kind of crazy. Um, you know, um, I, I love my uh, conspiracy theories, right? Um, you know, one could say this is politically based. Um, you know, setting that aside, this is great for the Fed. You know, you now have the cover to begin to lower rates next year. As I said in the previous couple of podcasts, the narratives in the market has changed from how long will the Fed raise to when will they begin to cut in the data with the jobs market cooling down or the jobs gains coming down. That just gives them more ammunition to do it. Right, right. So we'll see. Uh, I know inflation uh, looks like it is. Um, the rate at which it has been cooling uh, has been uh, decreasing. So we'll see if that also influences the Fed policy over the next few months here uh, before the end of the year. Um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. The first thing I had, Matt, was a tweet from Ed Clissold, uh, who is a strategist for Ned Davis uh, Research. And this was back on September 1st. Uh, Jenna will throw this tweet up for everybody to see here on the YouTube page, or you can find it in our uh, show notes. Uh, he said the S&P 500 fell 1.8% in August after surging 19.5% year-to-date through July. The 13 previous times the S&P 500 was greater than 10% through July and down in August, it rose every time September through December by an average of 9.9%. It's just one data point, but it supports the case that the August decline was a pullback within an ongoing uptrend. Um, so I thought this was really interesting, Matt, because, you know, August and September are known to be historically weak months for the market and even more so in pre-election years, which we are in one right now. Um, so and a lot of the weakness in September, at least coming in the second half of the year. So uh, once we get to around the September 14th, 15th time period um, is when we typically see that seasonal weakness. Um, but the good news uh, that is that after September, uh, October, November, and December tend to be excep exceptionally strong. Um, so I tend to agree with Ed here that this is just a, a small pullback or digestion, if you will, within a larger uptrend. Interesting you picked this piece. In a little bit, I got something similar from JC Peretz looking at some of the sector performance in August and his kind of feeling. Is this just a pullback or the beginning of a bigger correction? And I will share that piece with our uh, listeners and viewers here in a bit. Great. Uh, and then next thing I had was the kind of uh, dovetails off of what I was just talking about was a tweet from Ryan Dietrich on August 31st. Uh, and he said, utilities and staples were the worst two sectors in August. That isn't screaming risk off, is it? Many clues, this was simply a well-deserved break after a huge rally. Not saying we're out of the woods yet, but there simply aren't any major warning signs of things about to unravel. So uh, again, for newer listeners that are just with us, or, or just a refresher for our normal weekly podcast listeners, when we see a sell-off in the market, if it is led primarily by defensive areas of the market, such as utilities and consumer staples. Um, that makes our ears perk up a little more and say, hey, is this 
going to be a larger correction or a larger pullback than just a small blip on the radar. And an example of that was in, I believe it was the summer leading into the fall of 2021, Matt, we started to see these defensive sectors outperform uh, the other aggressive sectors in the market. And then obviously a couple months later, the market fell apart and we had 2022. Uh, well, this pullback in August, uh, the defensive sectors actually continued to underperform the aggressive sectors, even in this pullback. So what that tells us is, again, more evidence to it was just a smaller pullback. Uh, nothing is structurally wrong with the markets right now. Uh, credit spreads uh, remain pretty tight. Um, so right now we aren't seeing any major risk factors in the market, but as always with the caveat that, uh, risk in my opinion is something that is not being talked about or something that most investors don't see. Um, but as of right now, we are operating under the thesis that, uh, the rest of the year is going to be pretty strong once we get through this month of September. And let's say we're right for a second. And there are people who might be listening to this podcast who uh, sold out of a lot of equity exposure in 2022 that might not be back in the market yet. And if you have proper risk tolerances, goals and objectives, time horizons, and you see these periods of kind of a one step back, a sell off, consolidation, use the term that's appropriate for you. These could be some opportunities for you to get back to more of an appropriate stock allocation level. And so you're getting some pitches. So um, let's say that, you know, this kind of plays out the way it was uh, in, in history and you have a good Q4. Um, again, invest for your proper time horizon and risk tolerance, but you're getting some opportunities here. Yeah, yeah, great point. Uh, last thing I had was a tweet from Alfonso uh, de Pablos on August 28th, um, and he tweeted, who's buying Chinese equities at this shelf of former lows? Uh, it's a tweet of the Chinese internet ETF KWeb, and it's showing that kind of trading near the low end of uh, its range going back to you know 2014, 2016. Uh, 2014 is when the ETF uh, started trading and we're near those lows right now. And there's an additional commentary by the chart report, Matt, that I wanted to share with people. And it goes back to uh, what we talk about a lot is the magazine indicators. And this is uh, a little comical, too. So the chart report said today's chart of the day was shared by Alfonso de Pablos. Chinese stocks are starting to appeal to contrarians as a telltale sign of extreme pessimism emerges. This week's cover of The Economist features a caricature of Xi Jinping riding a half snail, half dragon with the caption, Xi's <laughs> failing model, why he won't fix China's economy. It's not just The Economist showing hate for Chinese equities. Jason Gopfart of Sentiment Trader pointed out today that the number of negative news articles on China is at a record high. Despite the bearish narrative, Alfonso shows that the Chinese internet ETF KWeb has reclaimed support at $26.50 and has formed an inverted head and shoulders pattern. Contrarians aren't necessarily betting Z will, or Xi will save the day, but rather they're betting that the worst has already been priced in for Chinese equities. So again, this is uh, kind of just a little comical map because The Economist has been pretty spot on uh, in the past of... Uh, you know, saying things are going to hell in a handbasket for certain areas of the market. 
the latest one is China. Um, and the funny thing, Matt, is that I just, you know, after I saw this, I kind of looked up some of the, the largest Chinese stocks within this uh, China internet ETF, one of them being Pinduoduo, which is a Chinese retailer. The ticker symbol is PDD. And just days after this mag magazine cover came out, you can't make this up. PDD was up 17% in one day. There it is. I mean, how many, how long have we been talking about the whole phenomenon of these magazine covers being the contrarian indicator over the years? It might not always work out that way, right? Uh, past performance is no in, uh, not indicative of future results, but it's like, that's just interesting how, how it worked out this way this time, right? Yeah, it does. And, you know, another thing to add on to this, I believe that it was just within the past week or two, I don't know if you heard this, but um, China reduced the amount of tax on stock gains Yes. Uh, over, yes. over in China. So that came out like right after this magazine cover too. So it's just like a perfect storm uh, for Chinese equities to potentially rally. And I'm not saying that, you know, everyone should rush in and, and buy China, but um, you know, China has been pretty weak for a decent amount of time now, so it wouldn't surprise me to see at least a short-term bounce or a beginning of a new uptrend in Chinese equities, especially when, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, Russia and China getting closer and closer and the whole ge geopolitical sphere is uh, kind of uncertain right now. There's more talks about them invading Taiwan. Uh, so everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people, at least what I'm seeing, are, are pretty bearish on China. So uh, interesting to see how China performs, I guess, over the next six months to a year. I agree. Um, my only uh, remaining comment on this topic is I'm not one to count out Xi Jinping. I mean, the, the guy is like Putin. He plays chess and he is 15 moves ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So uh, with that, I will turn it over to you. All right, my first piece, and I think you're going to enjoy this, Mark. It's a chart that depicts the relationship between the Fed funds interest rate. So for our newer listeners, that is the interest rate that the uh, government charges banks to borrow money from them versus the unemployment rate. Now, this piece is from Mike Zaccardi, Mark. Uh, as you know, he is a personal finance writer, investments and markets, um, and he's based out of Jacksonville Beach, Florida. He posted this on September 1st, and what it is, it's a chart where the source is Bank of America Global Investment uh, Strategy and Bloomberg, and it shows job openings versus unemployment peaking. Now, I'm going to have um, Jenna put this chart up for our YouTube viewers. This will be a part of our show notes, and our traditional podcast listeners can access these show notes in all of our social media sites, whether it be Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, etc., so what this chart depicts, and it goes back about two decades, Mark, is in the dark blue is the federal funds rate, again, the interest rate the government charges banks to borrow money. And it shows then the U.S. job openings uh, unemployed RHS indicator. And what's interesting is you've seen uh, in previous instances where the Fed has hiked and those job openings uh, peaked and came in right along with interest rates. What do you see this time around, Mark? I will let you interpret this chart. Yeah, it looks like 
you know, according to this chart, that the Fed is done or close to being done hiking interest rates uh, because job openings uh, divided by the unemployed is is falling. And you can see that the same thing happened back in 07. And then uh, again, in 2019, 2020, uh, kind of marked the beginning of interest rates uh, coming down, at least. So I was in a uh, client review meeting yesterday and the employment market came up as a topic. And, you know, one comment I made to this um, uh, during this meeting was in regards to the JOLTS report or the job openings report. And to give perspective to our listeners and viewers, Mark, pre-COVID, we had about 7 million job openings here in the U.S. Okay. At the peak point of pain for companies really seeking people to work, that number got above 12 million. As we sit today, we're sitting at around 9 million. So are we back to pre-pandemic levels from, say, a supply and demand metric uh, for staff at these companies? No, but you definitely see a downward trend. We're heading there. I want to throw that out there. Yeah, no, that's a great chart. Now, my next piece is going to be a little more lengthy because it contains multiple data points. To be uh, exact, uh, Mark, it contains three data points. And the topic of this for our viewers and listeners is the bond market. Okay. Now, the bond market uh, has been uh, challenging to say the least the last couple of years. Okay. So let's start putting some numbers behind this. My first piece is from Carl Cantania. He is in a news anchor at CNBC. He posted this on September 1st. He said, um, um, he quotes B of A on this, uh, Bank of America for our newer listeners, quote, uh, 10 year treasury on course for third consecutive loss, uh, negative 0.3% uh, in 2023, down 17% in 2022, and down 3.9% in 2021, has never occurred in the 250 year history of the U.S. Republic. So what this chart shows, and Jenna will put this up for our YouTube viewers, is it shows the United States 10-year government bond annualized returns, and it goes all the way back to the late 1700s, Mark. And again, we've never had three consecutive years of losses in this data set. That's a pretty extensive data set if you ask me, okay? Now, yeah, this might, be, this might take the cake for the longest history of a chart that we've put up on this podcast before. I will take that. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take that medal, that crown, and you'll probably take it away in a couple of weeks. I hope you do. But right now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that 250 year data set. Now, check this out. The next piece is from our friend Charlie Bellello. Okay, and Charlie posted this on September 2nd. Okay, now you talked about contrarian stuff. I want you to perk up on this, listeners and viewers. So Charlie Bellello said on September 2nd. U.S. bonds are down 7% over the last four years, their worst four-year return in history. Jenna will put this chart up for our YouTube viewers, and it's in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners. This chart, Mark, shows the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, uh, used to be called before the GFC, the Lehman Brothers Aggregate Bond Index. It shows its rolling four-year returns going back to January of 1980. And guess what you're going to find? It turned negative. And again, we're on their worst four-year return in history for that specific index. You ready for a third? 
Third is from Charlie Bellello, also on September 2nd. He says the U.S. bond market has been in a, in, has been in a drawdown for over three years, by far the longest bond bear market in history. Lastly, for this topic, Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. It's going to be in our show notes. This shows a data set, about a baker's dozen, of the U.S. Uh, aggregate bond index going back to 1976, Mark. And it shows how long the drawdowns lasted in numbers of months and what was the max peak point of pain. And we only have one from a double digit percentage that could even be relatable, which was from uh, August of 79 through April of 80, lasted nine months. You had a drawdown of 12.7%. What you're going to see at the top of this data set is from August 20th to now, we're 37 months in. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. So we're 37 months in, and the max point of pain, 17.2% so far. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's nuts. Um, typically, and we talked about this plenty of times before, typically bonds uh, do not underperform this badly for this long, and this, this data just shows that um you know if, if if again this is i feel like we talk about these things that all just kind of come together and fit perfectly into a little puzzle uh sometimes on the show map but you know with what we were talking about earlier with the fed possibly be done be being done or close to being done raising interest rates you know this might be a perfect storm for bonds to start their next leg up um, just because they have been so weak. And, uh, I, you know, I would expect, uh, you know, after we get to the, the first of the year in 2024, if the Fed truly is done raising rates, that we might see a, uh, a long outperformance in, in bonds, uh, going forward. So, uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. And we've been tracking this closely, uh, particularly via the ETF TLT, um, 10 years. Treasury bond ETF um, that has started to show signs of potentially trying to form a bottom. I'm not going to call it the exact bottom right now, but uh, we've seen a nice little bounce short term off of the lows. Um, so it wouldn't wouldn't shock me if bonds started kicking into gear here. Exactly, and I think that when you look three years down the road, not I mean the next six months, you look three years down the road. The contrarian part of me thinks you could have a tailwind on some of these potential bond returns, just given how bad the data is now. That's the only thing I'm saying, is that the numbers are so poor going back, not just weeks, not just months, not just years, not decades, centuries. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting when you look at that data set. Again, past performance not indicative of future results. This is a pretty depressed numbers, forward looking several years out. I think people might be surprised. Yeah. My last item, seasonal weakness. You brought this up at the top of the podcast. This uh, tweet is from JC Peretz, September 1st. Quote, consumer staples and low volatility stocks leading the way downside last month. That continues to suggest that we're just seeing some well-deserved seasonal weakness and not the beginning of some epic crash or bear market of any kind. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it earlier. I, I just, you know, 
you would expect some of these defensive names to start to to outperform at a certain point when there's going to be substantial market weakness or a longer period of weakness and just not seeing it right now. I agree, sir. Um, turn it back over to you for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, so this one was a blog post from Ben Carlson on August 18th titled, You Probably Need Less Money Than You Think for Retirement. And he starts off by saying, one of the biggest problems with money is our feelings about it are always relative. So many people assume that once they hit a certain level of income or net worth, that all their problems will magically vanish. <laughs> Unfortunately, what typically happens when you make and save more money is you begin comparing yourself to people who have more than you instead of your previous levels of wealth. Lifestyle creep causes you to spend more and more to keep up. And since there are always going to be people richer than you, it's difficult to feel wealthy even when you are. My contention is it's hard to consider yourself wealthy if you still worry about money all the time. The quotes from this Bloomberg survey that Ben went over um, from some of these respondents are telling in this regard. Quote, 10 years ago, if I had told myself I was making the money I am now, I'd be flabbergasted. I would have said I was living it up, he said. Now, while I'm financially secure, it doesn't feel like I'm making the dollar amount that I'm making, end quote. Another quote, honestly, the more, excuse me, the more money you make, the more your lifestyle kind of changes a lot, he said. Your vacations and the restaurants you go to are more expensive, end quote. Ben says this is a perfect encapsulation of lifestyle lifestyle creep and why some mythical number in the future probably won't solve all your problems. Younger you would probably be blown away by how much money you make, but older you is a completely different person with different preferences and responsibilities. Here's another one. Despite owning a home worth almost $400,000 in Dallas and a condo in Hawaii, Tom Thompson and his wife don't feel rich. In fact, having more money has just resulted in more bills. The 54-year-old is feeling the pressure of inflation, especially as he prepares to pay for his 18-year-old son's college tuition. Despite an annual household income of about 450000 Thompson worries about his job stability at an ad agency where losing a big client could mean a layoff. Quote, we're not living paycheck to paycheck, but I feel like we have looming expenses, he said. My personal definition of rich is the ability to buy or participate without concern, and I do not have that, end quote. Um, so I thought that this was a good article. People can read it. Uh, we'll throw it up in our show notes. Uh, you can read the whole article if you'd like. Um, but just another article on lifestyle creep and, you know, how or when people begin to make more and more money. You know, I've even, you know, when I was younger, I had this thought in my head. I'm like, if I just get to X dollar amount, you know, of income, you know, my problems are going to be gone. I'm not going to have, you know, any debt, yada, yada, yada. You can go down the line or I just have to save this amount. And once I have this amount in my 401k or this amount in my individual account, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to have any problems. But uh, the, the quote that stuck out to me here is that, you know, having more money just resulted in, in more issues or more bills. And I feel like that's common for a lot of people. Um, so I, I just thought it was a really good piece, uh, that I would rather see people compare to themselves instead of comparing to their neighbors or their family or their other friends, um, because everybody's situation is different. Like we talk about on the show all the time, 
Um, but I, I do agree that I think the definition in rich uh, of rich is not having to worry about money at all. And I think there's very few people out there that have that uh, fortunate ability. I agree, Mark. And here's the insights I want to provide our listeners and viewers. When it was said, quote, your vacations and the restaurants you go to are more expensive, end quote, it makes me think of a recent meeting I had. Uh, it was a financial planning meeting where I uh, sat down with an individual who was in his young 60s. And this gentleman um, uh, and his wife um, have not been great savers towards their retirement. And the issue that's presented itself is that this individual um, works a job that is very labor intensive. And this individual uh, was very worried about his ability to continue to work and, and meet their goals. But one of the things that was, uh, it appeared to be a non-negotiable is that their lifestyle was not going to change. Even at the, um, let's say the, the, the risks of uh, what that could do to, to his health. And I expressed that to this individual that, you know, if it gets to a point where, you know, you are really, you know, affecting your longevity, you have children, you know, you, and if you can't work anymore, we just might have to make a lifestyle adjustment. And, you know, uh, once we started going down that road and having that conversation, I think it was very enlightening for this individual. But up until that point, that, that was not even on the table. And until you start putting it into respect of, you know, longevity, you want to be around for your grandkids and those types of conversations, you know, all of a sudden the priorities change. So I just want to kind of throw that out there that um, those are those are tough things that once you attain a certain kind of lifestyle, it's it's really tough to, to, to want to go back. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, anything else, Matt, before we leave it here for the week? Not that I could really think of seasonal weakness here, as you kind of mentioned, uh, middle end of September. You've done a, a lot of due diligence and work on that. Don't be surprised if you see some choppiness, sluggishness in the market. Um, Q3 earnings season begins middle of October. It's right around the corner. We got uh, NFL season starting tonight, buddy. Are you excited? I am. I'm very excited. Yeah, we um... was it the Lions in the uh, visiting uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, the, the reigning Super Bowl champs. Yeah, we were, um, you know, just being home with, with me and Kenzie and taking care of the, the baby, you know, when we're, you know, hanging out with Mia, you know, we throw the TV on and, you know, I've never, you know, spent this amount of time at home over the past 10 years, like during the day, right? So we're like, <laughs> what, you know, what do we watch? And I've been watching tennis because the U.S. Open uh, is on right now, and that's been on for the past two weeks. So I've never watched so much tennis in my life. And it's like it's like baseball to me. I enjoy it, but I don't, I don't like to watch until like the last set. So I know, because I it's know. Just, it's like These two or three hours. Freaking killer, man. They are yeah, really they're, good. They're, they're great. And, and a recommendation for people, uh, if um, people want a good show on Netflix, there's a tennis documentary called Breakpoint. It's really good. And Kenzie and I loved it. So we kind of know some of the players now and, and it's been fun to follow them. But I'm yes, to answer your question directly, I am very excited for uh, the NFL season. Uh, I recently recently switched to YouTube TV because DirecTV stream was getting out of control with with pricing uh, and they were in a dispute with NBC. So I couldn't even watch NBC and uh, people that know me well is I am a 
lunatic of a golf fan. And the Ryder Cup at the end of this month is on NBC. So I was not going to let that happen where That's I could not watch it. completely unacceptable to Mark McEvely. I know it you is. well enough. Yeah, DirecTV, AT&T, get your you-know-what together. Um, but so I switched to YouTube TV, who does not have a dispute with NBC. And YouTube, YouTube TV just acquired the rights this season to um, the Sunday ticket. So I am able to watch my Washington Commanders this season every game, no matter where I am, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, uh, yeah, very, very. Well, the last comment I want to leave you with, I want you to know that the Commanders are heavily favored this weekend. Does that, does that concern you, Mark? Uh, no, it, you know what? I feel pretty good about this weekend because the okay. Cardinals look like uh, they're, a, they're a dumpster fire right now. But th- that's also... <laughs> Uh, one of the most dangerous games where everyone is so low on a team. I think everyone's expecting the Cardinals to finish in the bottom of the barrel for, for the year and have the number one draft pick next year. But um, that concerns me a little bit, but we have a new quarterback this year, Sam Howell, second year guy out of North Carolina, have some weapons on offense. Our defense should be just as good as it's been the past couple of years. So uh, I'm optimistic, very optimistic. But at least in Ohio, we got a, a big tilt uh, for Ohio. We got the Bengals against the Browns. Who are you taking? Oh, I can't wait for that game. One o'clock Sunday. Uh, looking forward to that game. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So it'll be good. I'm, I'm very excited for it. Uh, Lions, or yeah, it's the Lions against the Chiefs tonight. So hope I really like the Lions coach Dan Campbell. I really uh, do. He, the guy's got heart, man. He's he got does. heart. He does have heart. Yeah, he's just one of those guys that'll run through a brick wall for you. So, uh, yeah, hopefully it's a good game. I'd like to see the Lions uh, give the Chiefs a run for their money. But uh, I guess before we let listeners go, Matt, if you had to throw it out there into the universe, who wins the Super Bowl this year? Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow and the Bengals. MVP. He'll be able to get the MVP this year. Okay. All right. That's, that, that, that's, that's the Matt Jessup prediction. And I, I know, I hope when Aaron Kramer listens to this podcast, I know he'll be, you know, smirking and grinning and smiling that I just said that. But um, yeah. yeah, you talk about a QB that just is down to earth, that just loves the game. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for his future. Yeah, and I'm hearing that he's in contract negotiations right now and that potentially there could be a new contract that he gets from Cincinnati before the game on Sunday that would – potentially I was hearing make him the highest paid NFL player in history. So he should um, be, he should be in my opinion. Yeah, he is. All right, Matt. Well, we'll leave it there uh, for the week. We'll be back with you next week for episode number 218. Hope everyone enjoys their weekend. Enjoy the first weekend of NFL football. And we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent 
independent advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.